The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. The Jericho Network on Westwood One. All right, it's time to come on and feel the noise on Talk is Jericho today with bassist Rudy Sarzo and drummer Frankie Benali from Quiet Riot. They're dropping by to talk about the new Quiet Riot documentary. Well, now you're here, there's no way back. It's an amazing piece of film. It aired on Showtime a couple months ago. And if you missed it or don't get Showtime, the documentary is being released on iTunes and Google Play on August 18th. We'll be reminding you from time to time, you got to go check this out. You got to pick it up. You got to hear the rise and fall and rise again. The story of Quiet Riot. We're going to get into that whole story with Frankie and Rudy today. Their heyday, the fallout with singer Kevin Dubrow because of his drug problems and dealing with his untimely death. It affected Frankie's life, his friendships, his career. This is a story of redemption and what it's like for Frankie to get the band back going again. Rudy, no longer in Quiet Riot, but one of the greatest, most respected bass players of all time. Frankie's been a quiet riot from the start all the way till now. They're old friends. You can hear it. It's an amazing, amazing show today. And plus, to kick it off, back by popular demand, one of my most popular guests, Ash the Fish Expert, one of the smartest kids I know, also happens to be my son. He's ta- uh, Today, he's taking us to the murky waters of the Amazon River and some of the not-so-friendly fish that dwell in there. It's going to be an education in aquatic animals. Ash, of course, has got some survival tips in case you ever find yourself unexpectedly thrown overboard in that river talk is Jericho baby talk is Jericho talk is Jericho mama talk is me alright welcome to talk is Jericho it's the pot of thunder and rock and roll the remedy for boredom has arrived the people's podcast is here let's go for a ride cause it's Friday it's And let's jump straight into the water with one of TIJ's most popular and most frequently requested guests. It's the return of Ash the Fish Expert. All right, it's time um, for the return of one of the most critically acclaimed guests on Talk is Jericho. He hasn't been on for a while, but he is back today, and we have Ash, the fish expert, is here. Ash, it's good to have you back. Thank you. It's good to be back. It's been a while. You want to keep your fans waiting, right? Yeah. So we were watching River Monsters featuring your hero, Jeremy Wade. Called. 
and called Amazon Apocalypse. Okay, well, tell us what happened to Amazon. It was really interesting, so I wanted you to, to tell us because I was kind of confused as to what happened. Because he wasn't but, paying attention. Well, <laughs> that too. But you were going to tell me in general what happened on this Amazon Apocalypse. So fill fill us in about the whole story. The whole story begins when thirty years ago, a ship considered to be the safest ship on the Amazon. Uh, by the way, this is all. Cre- this goes to all. This credit goes to Jeremy Wade. It's mm. not copyrighted. <laughs> anyway, it all began when, and th- when thirty years ago, a ship called the Sor- Sorbel Santos, filled with six hundred plus pa- passengers, sank in the middle of the night, and only a third of the people survived. This hor- uh, terrible tragedy. Another third of the bodies was were never found or er, never recovered, and the ones so, that were were horribly grotesque, all eaten, shredded, disgusting limbs. So this this ship sank, sank. in the middle of the, of the Amazon River. Middle right in do, front. Do we of, know why uh, it sank? Obedo- um, it was overloaded. There, there's three main ships, and one was in repairs. One had just busted. So everyone. On the scheduled for those two ships had to go on the Sorbel Santos, and so and there was a bunch of cargo too. So it was just too heavy to overload it. It was just too how, heavy. How big is the Amazon River? Well, if you take all the other uh, other Amazon or all the other rivers in the world, biggest rivers in the world, and combine them, they would only be a fraction of the Amazon ri- okay, River. So this is a huge river, almost like huge, almost like a lake or something, like an ocean or something like this, or a lake. It has, on this show, it said it has more species of of fish in the in the uh, actual Amazon than there is in the actual ocean. Wow. Okay, so the so the ship sinks. Two hundred people survive. Two hundred people uh, bodies are recovered, and two hundred bodies are never recovered. And the ones never. that are recovered are torn to pieces, eaten up. So, is that piranhas that eat that eat them up, or what? What's what? What's what happened? Well, there's a ho- there's a number of creatures that are responsible for this tragedy and one of them happens to be piranhas Mm -hmm. who are day scavengers for all you who don't know they're scavengers and they hunt during the day so basically you could get in a tub of piranhas you know regular piranhas just get into the bathtub yeah within a bathtub with like a whole school of piranhas and they wouldn't attack you unless you were thrashing around bleeding they are attracted to movement. Unlike most fish, just moving, splashing, thrashing around, causing a commotion on the surface will attract lots and lots of piranhas. So if you just stand still, they'll just swim right past you? You can sit still. You can, They'll just swim right past you. They'll swim wow. all around you. Just, they won't attack you unless... You know, Something that's good to know if you ever fall into a pit of piranhas. <laughs> Just stay still. <laughs> when I used to wrestle in Japan, some of the garbage wrestling companies used to have matches where if you lost, you had to put your head in a tub with a piranha in it. Seriously? Yeah. Did you ever lose? I was never in one of those uh. matches, nor will I ever be. But now <laughs> if I was in one and I lost... I would just stay completely still. Yeah. Okay. So so piranhas were some of the culprits, but what else were we seeing? Well, like I said, there's scavengers, and then there are the ones that 
are pulling people down as they're thrashing on the surface. They're pulling people down, and then this, the others can, the other fish can pull them down. What other fish was pulling them down? The fish that pull, that were pulling them down were mainly two two large predatory catfish that have instincts to bolt as soon as they grab onto something. So one of the fish is a paraiba. Say it with me. Paraiba. Paraiba. Yeah. Paraiba. And they're what kind big of li- catfish. Some people call them river sharks because mm-hmm. they look lots like sharks. And they are feared like sharks in, you know, lower Amazon Delta areas like that. Okay. And what they were doing is they'd grab onto someone's leg or arm or foot. And then once their predatory instincts is to grab, if they grab onto something that's too big or just anything, as soon as they grab onto it, they'll drag it to cover. They'll go to cover. They'll go into reeds or a cave. So they pull their prey into like this, this camouflaged areas. Well, not they even bite prey. Just... They bite, they, they grab on, you know, and if they can't swallow it whole, then they just, they just keep on. There's so they're instinct. biting chunks of flesh out no, of... No, 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 no. They're just grabbing whole legs and oh, they're okay. dragging. They have huge heads and huge mouths so they could fit, you know, up to your, up to knees worth of leg. Mm-hmm. And then, I mean, obviously that's, no, so they're they're, they're they're biting your leg up to your up to your knee. Possibly. And then there's also arms, elbows. Fingers. So are they carnivores? Yes. Oh. Yes, they are. I wasn't aware that fish were, were flesh-eating monsters. Well, it's not that. It's just some can be very vicious and Okay, vicious. right. So they're, it doesn't matter if it's a person or if it's like a cow walking across the river. Okay, a cow, that would be that'd take a lot of fish. <laughs> Okay, so continue. Anyway, they'd grab on the legs and then just pull down. And then if they wouldn't let go, they'd eventually just tear off chunks and then they'd let go by that by that time the victim would have been drowned. Mm-hmm. Or um they'd grab on and then they'd let go halfway and then the other fish would come and then just eat them. And now, like I said, there's the Pierreba and there's also the red tail catfish, which uh is a really heavy weight fish that has like it's one its head is, makes up one third of its body mm-hmm. obviously you can imagine a big mouth with lots of teeth but it's, there's actually not a lot of teeth it's grass rasping little teeth plates tiny tiny little teeth hmm. that just grip they're just gripping teeth so they're kind of giving you like a like a rug burn like a yeah kind of like sandpaper. sandpaper it's like sandpaper and then they just they just grab on, and then when you're struggling, they're holding firm, so you're literally just shredding your leg. Mm-hmm. And then, you know how I was saying, they drag them, and then they'd let go, but by that time, the the victim would be drowned. Mm-hmm. Then the scavengers would come in. Oh. So, so the red tail or the... the, the red pa- tail and the paraibo would pull them dragging down. Dragging you down. And then some would let go, some would not let go. And then the ones, you know, if you die, if you died in the water, like if, if you, you were drowned, drowned, or even if you were just thrashing around, two other suspects would come to kill you or eat you. Well, same thing. Go yeah. ahead. And those two are scavenger small fish that you would not suspect to be your killer. But we'll start out with one. And it's a catfish. I can't remember the actual name, but the, the locals call it the vulture or vulture fish because mm-hmm. it's a scavenger. And it's a catfish, 
and it just takes little chunks out with, you know, biting sharper. Bite-sized chunks. Yeah, bite-sized chunks. And they ha- are in mass numbers, far more numbers than most other fish in the Amazon. So there's swarms of them. Hmm. And those just take little chunks out of you. And then there's another, the other one, other fish that is a scavenger and behaves kind of like the uh, river vulture. That's what it's called, not the vulture fish, river, river vulture. vulture. It's called the kandiroo asu. Now, if you don't know what that is, and I bet some of you guys don't, no offense, but I bet some of you guys don't know what it is. It is a small, like six to seven inch fish that burrows in, burrows into you. Ooh. So. Dead people will have sometimes what looks like bullet holes in their legs or chest and arms. But then when they go for the dissectomy, they cut open and then there's nothing left. It's just skin and bone. Because what happens is these candy ruasu literally eat you from the inside out. Oh my goodness. And... Did I already mention how there's cargo? Lots of cargo. Okay. You said there was lots of cargo in, on the on the ship. Yeah. Well, there's lots of cargo, and some of the reasons why the candy ruasu and the river vultures are attacking is because crates are falling on people, and then they'd get they'd either be cut up or drowned. They'd get crushed by these falling crates, and then the water would fill up and then drown them. So that's why there's a bunch of scavengers already on the scene. So if you're just a struggling passenger and one of a fish bites onto you, and then you'll start bleeding, and then more and more will come. Wow! And then the fr- feeding frenzy starts. Yes. Gotcha. Wow! So that's what you, that's what they figured out that all of these scavengers and all of these different types of fish a help to kill the passengers, and then b basically ate them, ate their corpses. Yeah. So they would disappear. Yep. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty gross, man. Yeah, it's pretty those gruesome. ones can those which what are the ones that are burring? What are they called? The candy. Candy rusu. Do they do that to live hosts um, as well? What I've learned from the show and just from researching a little bit is that they bite on and you could feel them, so you could pull them off. But if you're like wounded and there's already a little cut hole, they'll just they, and there's nothing you can do at that point. Yeah, if they get a good bite in and they're already halfway in. You got to get to the hospital really quickly. Pull them out. Oh, it's yeah. gross. Or if you're drunk, you may have. If you're like just getting into the water and you just had, I don't know, a couple beers, and um, and they bite on, you may have a little bit tr- of trouble just pulling them off because your brain isn't focused on it. So it'll be like, oh, it's just a little bite, and then ten minutes later, you're dead. You've got a fish eating you from, from the, the inside, inside out. Yeah. Wow, so the moral of the story is don't go swimming on the Amazon. Never go swimming on the Amazon. And if, I mean, and if you're going to go on a boat, make sure that it's not oversold. Oh, yeah. Overpacked. Overpacked. Another uh, amazing, interesting, educational uh, uh, episode with Ash, the gruesomely, fish expert. Gruesomely educational. Absolutely. Well, Ash, thank you, man. Thank you. It's Any good last, to be back. Good to be back. Yeah, you want to come back again uh, quicker than the last time? Yeah, maybe... Well, I don't know. Maybe I'll just do a special, like, talk about one separate fish. Maybe you guys could tell me. I don't know. If you guys got some fish you want Ash to talk about, why don't you go on the Twitter, at TalkIsJericho, hashtag it, AskAsh. And what do you want him to ask you, Ash? Uh, what fish you'd like to know? It, it, it could be any type of fish, and I'll just 
right before the show, I'll re- or I'll look them up, and if I don't know them, I'll look them up and do a little bit of research about them, and then I'll just tell you facts about them, I guess, or okay. special right. accounts of so them. So it's at Talk is Jericho, and the hashtag is? Ask Ash. <laughs> All right. Sorry. <laughs> All right. Thanks to Ash for joining us, as always, and giving us an education on the flesh-eating catfish of the Amazon River. How does he know this stuff? See what you learn listening to TIJ. I never knew there was such a thing as flesh-eating catfish, did you? <laughs> if you have a fish request for Ash, who also happens to be my son, just hit him up on the Twitter via this show, at Talk is Jericho, and hashtag Ask Ash. You can also follow him on Instagram. He's called um, almost underscore cool underscore guy. And when you see the guy with the swank mullet and mustache, yeah, that's my son's uh, profile picture for his Instagram account. (laughs) He's a character, all right. You know, Uh, if you need a laugh to lighten the mood after hearing about the crazy fish creatures that lurk in the murky waters of the Amazon, then you need to go check out my Comedy Central digital series, Nothing to Report. We're almost at a million views. We're actually looking just like about 10,000 views under a million and climbing. And let me tell you this. These are five-minute bite-sized morsels of comedy genius. It doesn't take a lot of time. You want to go have a cup of coffee and you need something to divert yourself? Get off the Twitter. Get off the Facebook. Go watch Nothing to Report. It takes five minutes. You can watch all six episodes in half an hour. I'm not asking you for a lot here. People, just go check it out. Go to YouTube. Type in Nothing to Report, and I guarantee you'll love it. Love them almost a million views already it's just been over a month the more views we get the more chance that comedy central will uh, allow us to make more maybe a pilot maybe even take us to series forget about key and peel forget about amy schumer forget about the daily show you're talking about nothing to report monday and jericho uh, nick monday and i did a press tour over the past week we're all over the place we're on michelle Beadle's podcast uh fox sports sports nation cracked.com some hilarious stuff there we did the sklar brothers we did jay and Dan's uh, podcast. We did Loveline. That was hilarious. So uh, you're going to get sick of us, but we don't care. We're not going anywhere. I'm not going anywhere. I'm coming at you live. Just finished the pilot for the History Channel. I'm here tonight to do the upfronts here at for NBC because I'm hosting Tough Enough. There's another thing that I'm going to be doing. And on top of that, I'm coming back to the WWE for live events only. 19 dates. It's the Y2J WWE Summer Tour. You're only going to see me in these towns springfield illinois Terre Haute, indiana las vegas nevada boston massachusetts reading pennsylvania singapore july 3rd tokyo japan july 4th tokyo japan with the first ever meeting of finn balor versus chris jericho it's a japanese fans dream match it's a hardcore wrestling fans dream match you're gonna if you you want to be see you want to see it you got to go to Ryogoku in the sumo, uh, sumo hall to see this match. It's a one-time only thing. I put it together because I wanted to do it for all the great fans of Japan. I had such so many great tours there. I've been there uh, 60 times plus. And for the hardcore fans, it's creating a buzz of Balor versus Jericho, something that no one has ever seen before. And that's one of the reasons why I came back, actually, because I saw the Japanese tour and I said, I either want to work with Finn Balor, I want to work with Hideo Itami, or maybe both. Itami's hurt. Balor's going to be there. 
We're going to tear the damn house down. So if you want to uh, want to see something that you don't see every day, be there. You can tell your, your kids about it. You can tell your parents about it. Uh, hopefully it turns out to be a, a, as big and as huge of a match as I think it will. I did it for you guys. I did it for the fans. I did it for Jericho-holics. I did it for Finns fans. So um, you know I still love you. That's why I'm coming back because I still love to perform in front of all you people, especially uh, the, the special match for all the, the great, great fans in Tokyo, who I grew up in front of, started going there in 1991 and been going there regularly ever since. Speaking of regular, Philly, Pittsburgh, San Diego, Ontario, California, Fresno, Detroit, East Lansing, Bridgeport, White Plains, San Juan, Puerto Rico, Tallahassee. If you have uh, any interest in seeing me this summer, you got to catch me at those cities only. I will be going nowhere else. There will be no TVs or pay-per-views only this cool, cool, cool live event, Chris Jericho's Y2J WWE Summer Tour. All right, let's get to the nitty-gritty. i got Rudy Sarzo and Frankie Benali of Quiet Riot here. We're going to talk about the new documentary. Well, now you're here. There's no way back. It's an amazing piece of filmmaking. Aired on Showtime earlier this year, and now it's available at iTunes, Google Play, Video On Demand starting August 18th. If you're in the L.A. area, May 22nd, they'll uh, be airing the movie, showing it in Hollywood at the Arena Theater. You can check out all that information at, at Quiet Riot on that Twitter. We're going to hear what it's like to be in one of the biggest rock bands uh, in the world one day and then no longer having a band just a few years later. People forget how huge Quiet Riot was, and we're going to jog your memory about how big the band really was in 1983, 1984. We'll also hear about how they dealt with late singer Kevin Dubrow's trouble with drugs and his eventual death because of them, and what it's like to keep Quiet Riot rocking today. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Talk is Jericho. We're here talking with uh, with Frankie Benali and Rudy Sarzo. Uh, we're talking about the documentary. Now you're here. There's no way back. But you were just mentioning that your dog now yeah. is famous because it was it was in the documentary. Yeah. Well, actually, she calls this a dog documentary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I hear Duran Duran are gonna go, have a comeback hit with uh, Tori. Oh, yep. Yeah, yep. Come back here with Tori. That's right. Yeah. Your dog's name was Tori. Yes, yep. that's great. Tori, Tori on film, I believe, yeah, is the Tori tentative title. Film. Yes, for the for the single. <laughs> the documentary. It's a, it's an amazing piece of work, and it's great to have you guys here. Uh, the rhythm section from from the uh, I guess you'd say the biggest years of Quiet Riot's career. Uh, for so many, for so many different ways, and and um, such a great movie. I mean, the, the, we, it's been on Showtime. It, it debuted a couple months ago, and uh, it's about the the kind of the the, the life and times, the trials and tribulations of, of Quiet Riot, which. You guys, you were basically there, Rudy, from the start. Frankie, you were there from almost from the start, and you've mm-hmm. kept this going your whole career. Whereas Rudy's kind of gone back and forth here and there. And um, what's the reaction been so far f- from the film since it played on Showtime? It's pretty amazing. I didn't really know what to expect because mm-hmm. when you have a 30-plus year history of a band um, and you're trying to hit all the key points uh, within you know a, a two-hour, let's say a two-hour film, 
you know, you you wonder where you, you, how many people you're going to be able to please, you know, mm-hmm. because everybody wants a certain amount of content. Um, but I've been very surprised across the board. The um, the acceptance and support of the film has been phenomenal. Everybody everybody has learned a lot about the band that they didn't know anything about. You know, a mm-hmm. lot of the history of the band, um, the different uh, components of it, um, and everything up through through real time and and the trials and tribulations of being in a band. Because being in a band is is you know everybody thinks you wake up in the morning, the hair's perfect, you you already got your rock, uh, rock clothes on, and you go out and you do a gig and everything is fine. You go to a big party and it's that's if that happens you're really fortunate but when it happens that's a very small part of it people don't really realize the business side of what being in a rock and roll band is i mean there's so much of that especially when you're first starting out because you just want to rock i just want to be in a band i just want to make it happen you realize pretty quickly there's a whole other side to it where the musicianship and the songwriting unfortunately is is basically just the tip of the iceberg to having a successful band yeah you start out as a a group of of people who have the same goals and and same dreams and hopes in mind and then when you actually have the opportunity um to to do that uh all of a sudden you you all these walls get put up because now all of a sudden you have to think about all these things you never thought about before and and it affects how you do business it affects your personal relationships within the band mm-hmm. um and and the minute success is is right right around the corner you're ready to walk through that door once you go through that door everything changes uh, and you're not prepared for that mm-hmm. there's no rule book there's no blueprint that says okay when you do this then the next thing is that right. nobody has any idea you learn as you go along and you make mistakes as you go along has there been a lot of uh, feedback, like you know, from on Twitter and from the fans from after the movie came out, especially for you, Rudy, because it's been such a long time since you were involved with Quiet Riot, especially from that that peak of the band's success. Um, well, actually, since you, Frankie, you control, you know. Mm-hmm. The pages and the Twitter, I mean, you will be getting most of the uh, feedback. The Twitter account has just exploded, um, and it happens every single time that Showtime airs it. You know, they, they did the um, they did the original uh, premiere, uh, and mm. but they've kept adding more and more and more showings, and every time it shows, um, Twitter blows up, Facebook blows up, the Quiet Right page blows up, the, uh, the Quiet Right movie page blows up, so the response has been ridiculous almost impossible to keep up with uh we're getting tweets from from really unlikely sources that that absolutely love the film you know it's interesting too like we're musicians and i'm a fan and true fans know what rudy's been doing how many bands you've played and true fans know that frank has been doing quiet riot for the last 30 years but a lot of fans i'm sure didn't they remember i had mental health when i was you know 10 years old or 15 years old i didn't know anything about this kind of last 25 years of the band's existence and that's that's the, the uh why the movie works so well is there such a uh, such a heartfelt story behind this whole thing and obviously the, the the partnership between you and kevin dubrow the singer quiet riot and how what really got me like even knowing the story and and, and you know kevin's passing in 2006 2007 2007 i thought it was really interesting and really kind of hit home when you said you know we made this deal that we'd be doing this when we were 80 years old and he'd have the walker with the white and and black, you know, tape around it. And oh yeah, my and, it's, and it's all and it's all true. We would have, we would have, you know, the thing about my relationship with Kevin, his relationship with mine, is that we went from being really close to being so incredibly far apart mm-hmm. uh, because of some of the things that happened between us in the band um, to becoming really, really close again. So 
we ended up having lunch and dinner out on the road together every single time we were out on the road, not because we had to, but because we wanted to, because it was usually just he and I, not anybody else in the band. And we would talk about these things. You know, we figured, okay, well, as long as uh, as the Super Bowl continues to play, you know, come off of the noise or, or metal right. health, or as long as some commercial picks it up, or as long as it's um, in some film, um, we're going to have the opportunity to do this well beyond we lose our sight and we lose our teeth you know but as long as we can put out the goofy clothes and get up on stage and and that was the plan Mm -hmm. that we were going to continue doing that and um and it didn't it didn't work out that way didn't work out that way the thing for me that's really rewarding about the film is the way regina russell the director edited Mm -hmm. everything and put everything together um the greatest part about it is that not only does it appeal to to quiet riot fans or music fans in general, but it it appeals to people or appeals to people who, who don't really care about music or don't really care about the right. style of music or don't really care about Quiet Riot. So they have they they become invested in the story above and beyond that band that had the number one um, album. Well, and that's the secret to a great documentary. Regina, you can come on up to to the mic. This mic works, right, Stacy? Doesn't work. Okay, we'll we'll figure it out. Um, you, you got you and Rudy can do the Paul McCartney, George Harrison, and share a mic for a second. Yeah. Um, what I was going to say what is that Ringo? <laughs> the, Ringo, the, the, the secret well, the secret to a good documentary is the story. It doesn't matter, like you said, if it's about Quiet Riot, if it's about U2, if it's about Hank Williams, it's the storyline that counts. I mean, there's a great documentary a few years ago called The King of Kong, which was about um, video games. But it wasn't just about video games and like the, the best Donkey Kong players. It was about the storyline within it. And that's what the, why, the, why the Quiet Riot movie works. Remind me a little bit on a much larger scale, did you guys see the Anvil movie yes. a couple years ago? Yes. Same idea. Two guys that got together when they were kids that just want to rock, and here they are, you know, 35 years later with nothing, still holding on to the dream. And it was such a heartwarming story, and that's where, where this came up with, too, because Quiet Riot, you forget how big Quiet Riot was in 1983. You really did. I forgot how big Quiet Riot was in 1983 until we started going through the footage because, you know, you you kind of, that happened so long ago. Mm -hmm. And and even looking back, and I remember pretty much everything, but it was still really surreal. Um, So going back and looking at it was... Oh wow, yeah, we we were all that, and then some. You know? So yeah. talk about the about the mental health record, just the charts. I remember you, you seen that documentary, the, the the bands that you beat to continue because it wasn't like it is now. Nowadays, you put out a record, it charts, it goes to number twenty two. Next week, it's off the charts. It disappears. Yeah. In those days, it would start at two hundred and start working its way up the ladder. Correct. Yeah. Yeah, it was. It's pretty interesting when I watch the Grammys and I see like all these posers now you know the current the current <laughs> yeah. you know big people and i look at them and say you know what we saw more records than these guys <laughs> and look at right. them we never had that attitude you know yeah. of like you know going up on stage and taking away you know the awards West from thing. other people so like wait a minute you would never do that no, and let me exactly. tell you what if, yeah. if kanye west with all the money that he has can invent the time machine and he go back to 1983 he would not be able to take our number one record i don't care i'll take him down i'll take him down to the mat he would not be able to do that okay and we're not going to give it to beyonce either in the past so 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 where where did it, it metal uh, metal health enter the charts? Do you remember? Uh, I think well, I think it broke the the top two hundred. I think it was one eighty four. Okay, is when it broke the the top two hundred. 
you know, a lot of people don't realize, they just think that Quiet Riot put out the mental health record and all of a sudden it was number one. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were out on the road for about seven months before before it really hit the impact and and we were we were opening up for for everybody scorpions uh, black sabbath um zz top i mean it just you know iron maid it ran the gamut but it took a lot of work to get it there um and when we got close to the top all of a sudden you know we we're looking at this wall of michael jackson and and uh, Lionel Richie and Paul McCartney and, and all these the police synchronicity the police right? synchronicity I mean all of these established acts that had consistent number one records and and like hit singles left and right and and when we got up up to that level we said what happens now and it came as a great surprise to us we were playing Rockford uh, Illinois opening up for Black Sabbath, and that's when we found out, you get the numbers a week uh, mm-hmm. a week ahead of time, that's when we found out that next week we had knocked the police out of the number one spot, and it was it was surreal, unbelievable, and and then we put on our stage clothes and, and did our set, you know, opening up for did. Black Sabbath, yeah. How was that for you, Rudy? Do you remember that day? Oh, yeah, I'll never forget, because right after the, uh, right after the show, we went over <laughs> to Rick Nielsen's house. <laughs> From and, and he was preparing for a marathon. Yeah. And well, we- he came, let, let me, let me, let me interrupt for a second. <laughs> he actually called production and wanted, and wanted to be put on the guest list because his kids were fans of Choir Riot. Okay. So, so that's, so that's how it started. All right. <laughs> so we went back to his house and we partied with him and he fell off. And- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The last, we, we partied, we partied at Rick's house hard. Uh-huh. Yeah. Really hard yeah. and the last thing we saw was rick was standing at the top of the stairs uh-huh. outside the house front door <laughs> and his wife is giving us a ride back to the hotel because we had like 8 a.m uh, lobby call to go to the next city and the last thing <laughs> we look back and last thing is rick is waving and then we come to find out that right after we turned that corner and he was out of sight, he slipped, fell, broke his leg, and they were supposed to go out on tour the next day. Yeah. So, so you party with Quiet Right, you party with the best. Break your leg. <laughs> down, down. <laughs> make a note of that. Make that. Yeah, use that later. Now, Regina, I think now we finally have you up. How did you, how did you get involved? Was, was this documentary something that you had the idea for? Was it Frankie's idea? How, what's the genesis of this? Um, yeah, it was my idea. When he told me he wanted to meet with Kevin's mom and get her permission to go on with the band and find a new singer, mm-hmm. I joke, I jokingly said, that sounds like the plot of some documentary that you would see. Mm-hmm. And then I said, wait a second, I've always wanted to make a documentary. Why don't we make a documentary out of this? And he said, no. <laughs> you said no. Yeah, I'm, you know, I mean, yeah, it's a silliness. We don't, we don't, we don't like to put anything out there. You know? Yeah, <laughs> so. yeah. You don't want to open your yourself yeah, up to no, that. I'm a rock you know, guy. No, no, yeah, you know. I'm a rocker. Yeah, you have your espresso and smoke at the Nobly, and, and you, you know, you call it a day. <laughs> How hard was it, uh, or or? Uh, I guess interesting was it to go back through and find all these clips. Did, did you have all this stuff in the in your house? Did you have to go look for it from super collector fans? Well, he has a huge archive, and I had actually seen a lot of it because he show, he had shown me all these home movies, and we mm-hmm. were sitting around watching them and laughing. And that was another reason what triggered in my mind when he when I thought of the documentary, and I thought, oh yeah. And then there's all those. Home movies, but I did have to. I did have to look through some archives, some um, film libraries, to get some of it. Mm-hmm. So because it, what happens is, you know, we did uh, when when a band like Quiet Riot becomes so big, we did a ridiculous amount of interviews. Um, and when you do those interviews, you don't own them. <laughs> you know, you do the interviews, yeah. you put it all out there, you ask the questions, and then all of a sudden, when you need to use it. 
they're in libraries and, and you know Regina had the daunting task of tracking the stuff down tracking the people down um, and it wasn't just in the US it was over uh, overseas and being able to get the uh, the pieces that she needed you know um, to look at and choose what and then uh, and then move forward from there so it was a lot of hard work for her because it's been going on for a while I remember hearing about this a few few years ago four years four years ago four yeah. Years, yeah. So it takes a while to get get all the clearances and get everything worked out and get all the interviews that you wanted to get. But once it was released, Rudy and I talked about this uh, briefly. How was it for you watching watching the the, the documentary? It was it, it was very very emotional, you know, because you know it just with every great story there has to be conflicts in there, you know. So actually to to be reliving, you know, some of the conflicts that happened. Uh, I, I, there were some great times too, and of course, you know, I I, I cherish those. Uh, but just you know, the, the certain conflicts, you know, they always, you know, they're, they're a little bit hard to watch. But then again, it's it makes for a great story. You know, mm-hmm. it makes it for a universal story because I mean, there there's going to be bands out there watching the documentary, connecting with it, and saying, you know what, we're going through the same thing. Maybe we can learn from these guys. Maybe we can avoid, you know, whatever decisions that were each certain individual made in the band you know maybe we can you know learn from this and and make better decisions yeah and and i and i share rudy's feelings because what happens in a situation is that human nature um allows you to continue moving forward by remembering the happy moments um and and sort of like Putting putting aside the 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 uncomfortable moments, you know, so that you can just continue and 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 be a productive and happy person, um, and and watching and especially watching the final product when Regina was done with it, uh, for me it was difficult too for on a, on a couple of levels because I understood how big Quiet Riot was, but I had forgotten how big Quiet Riot was. There's a difference between understanding, okay, yeah, we had number one record and we did all this and we did all these tours. There's another thing looking at, at you know, the US Festival footage and and, uh, and the stuff, the touring stuff and the things on the road. Um, and then also it's, that brings back all of the things that also went wrong with the picture. For as many things as were right with it, there were at least equally as many things that were wrong with it. Um, and and all of a sudden, you start remembering, you know, all those all those emotions started coming up again. And uh, and it's a it's a difficult thing to process. It is. Yeah, it's kind of like that scene in Clockwork Orange where at the end he's like, "What's he going?" <laughs> the forks in his eyes, <laughs> blackout by the scorpions. <laughs> but instead of Beethoven, is bang your head. <laughs> Let's let's talk about this. I mean, we mentioned. I mean, number one record and and the US Festival. I want to talk about that too. I watched that actually. Now it's on YouTube. The entire set. Mm -hmm. I watched that once a month. It's a great set. It's one of it's one of my favorite sets maybe that I've seen in a while. Uh, You guys were right on it. You guys were at the at the precipice. You knew something big was happening. Yeah. And uh, well, tell us about that day. Tell us about the US Festival. What do you remember about that? Because there was well, what three hundred thousand people, four hundred thousand over, people, over three hundred seventy-five thousand people yeah. by the time we went on at eleven thirty. But yeah. you have to understand, you know, the the whole road road warrior mentality that we had. We had played El Paso, um, an afternoon show the day before, and and it was a dust bowl and hot, and and we were covered in, in sweat, muddy sweat, and we literally had to get off the stage, get in the cars, go to the airport, change in the bathroom at the airport. Mm-hmm and fly 
um, to, what, to what Los was it, Angeles. San Bernardino or uh, yeah, San Bernardino. Okay. Fly to LA and drive to San Bernardino. Yeah, and uh, and so you know everybody went to the rooms, and the next morning we had at ten thirty in the morning we had to be um, at the press island, and and you know we're we're tired and burnt out, and we've got our goofy clothes on, um, but we had the option of either playing first or having Motley Crue play first. And, and a second. Um, and I had had the conversation with, with Kevin and subsequently with our manager at the time, Warren Etner, that Kevin wanted to go on second. He didn't want to go on first. That was, you know, Kevin's mentality is, you know, he's not an opening act. Um, but, but the reasoning was that those people were there all night. Right. By 1130 in the morning, it was incredibly hot. They hadn't had any music except what was being canned through the speakers. And the first band that got up on that stage was going to make an impact, especially if we didn't blow it. And 11.30 in the morning, we didn't blow it. We knocked it out of the park. It Is was that what great. time it was? 11.30? 11.30 in the morning. Wow. Yeah, 11.30 that crowd was, they were all there. They were ready. Yeah, and Sometimes they were, you play a festival and 11.30, there's you know, a few people. But it was... Well, we were fortunate that at that point in time, um, radio was already doing a good amount of, of promotion for, for the single, for uh, Come On, Feel the Noise. Mm-hmm. So they were aware of the song. When Kevin announced the song, they knew it. Uh, and when he announced uh, Mental Health, they knew it. So we had that advantage. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, we brought it. I mean, we, we went out there and we did what we were supposed to do. And it was wonderful. Especially in front of that gigantic crowd. I mean, you're going to yeah. see... Ten rows of people, and then just a moving, breathing entity beyond that. There was yeah. no horizon. There was just there were just heads yeah. and hands. There yeah, was it was no like horizon. I looked out in the audience, three hundred seventy-five thousand people, and all, all I could think was, where are they going to go to the bathroom? <laughs> <laughs> the caring, sharing heart of Rudy Sarzo. Right. Well, you know, always at the forefront of his mind are the fans. <laughs> yeah, of course, you know. <laughs> Because, because usually, in, in, as you know, you know, in an uh, uh, English festival, you get pelted with bottles of, yeah, of, of whatever, urine, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. whatever it is, <laughs> a bodily mean, fluids. Well, I mean, they get thrown out the stage, where, you know, <laughs> yeah, and then you yeah. try to, like, try avoid to dodge it. it. Exactly. Speaking of which, and this is something I read about in your book, but it's, a, it's an interesting story. You guys had a, a really big stage. Uh, Kevin's running around a bit, but you have your Rudy Sarzo area, and you're going nuts. You're playing all the different ways. You play bass upside down, mm. but you never moved out of that like kind of a, a four foot space. That yeah. wasn't Ozzy. That was not yeah, in Quiet yeah, Riot. Well, that That's was with, what I yeah, that was with Ozzy. But you know, at the very beginning, I was still you know you trying had just made the transition. Yeah, right? yeah, making the transition, and you know, yeah, and I, I, I don't even. Th- why yeah. did why yeah, did, why, was, why was that a rule uh, with Ozzy? No, no, it was kind of like a something that it 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 it, it, it changed eventually, you know, because you have to consider this was basically our maybe less than twentieth gig mm-hmm. that we did as a right. band, maybe like because we did about three, or we we did two nights, two shows at the Roxy when we first. That was like the record was released on mm-hmm. March whatever. Mar- uh, it was released on yeah. uh, on March eleventh, and yeah. the, and the gigs at the Roxy were the seventeenth and the eighteenth. Okay, and so a week later. And then we we went on to do three shows mm-hmm. with Vandenberg up in the uh, you know all the all the Keystones mm-hmm. up there Northern in California. The, uh, and then that we maybe we did a show in San Diego at the uh, what was that called the uh, that that small club in San Diego. 
No, I don't think. I, th- I think after. I think after. Was that those, afterwards? Because we. Yeah, had, that was afterwards. We because, had the RV. Yeah, that yeah. was afterwards. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, yeah. Because we came back after those three shows, uh, and then and then there was kind of a kind of a pause because the band hadn't taken off yet, <clears throat> um, and <clears throat> it wasn't until um, we did a gig. <clears throat> excuse me. We did a gig, which was the epitome of Spinal Tap, because in in the Spinal Tap film they they do a gig at um, at an amusement park, yeah. right? Uh, well, that amusement park that they filmed it. <laughs> That yeah, that's that's um, Magic Mountain. Oh, okay, and that was that was the the last California show we did before we went off to Arizona and we started we started the Metal Health tour. Yeah. So so it was a lull in, in, yeah, in, in the action. Lull. And people don't understand that we did the 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 first video we did was not come off of the noise. It was Metal Health, mm. and it fell on deaf ears and eyes. You know, I mean, you know, it's, it's Stevie, nobody cared. Stevie Wonder didn't see it. Helen Keller didn't hear it. You know, I mean, it just it just went away. Uh, and then we did the second one uh, for Come On Feel the Noise. And when that became um, uh, a rotation hit on MTV, that brought the Metal Health back back up again. Yeah. Yeah. But what I was saying was, were you told when you were in Aussie, Rudy, that you ha- you couldn't move around yeah. much on stage, right? Yeah. Well, that was, it was because it was tradition. Mm-hmm. You, know, you, you know, what happened was that I had been playing with Quiet Riot uh, on, on the Sunset Strip, you know, the, the Strip and Starwood and stuff like that. And our performance was a little bit more animated than yeah. the traditional metal band, which like like Black Sabbath. So the front sh- man commands the stage. Yeah, exactly. And everybody is basically static as far as, you know, like uh, Geezer and Tony was standing. And what on yeah. one side, and Nazi would do his thing, you know. So she wanted pretty much the same thing. Whereas Randy and I, we came from a more animated presentation. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Because you and Randy started in Quiet Riot. Because you were in Quiet Riot before you went to Ozzy. Then you were in Quiet yeah. Riot after Randy's yeah. passing, and you left Ozzy. So yeah. were were you in the band too at this time? Were you ever in the band with with Randy Rhodes, Frankie? Mm, no. And okay. and 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 if we go a little bit further back, you got to remember that that. We recorded the Metal Health record with Rudy in 1982, but Rudy and I met and started playing together in 1972. Wow! So, so ten years. So we had we had history before that. Yeah. Wow! Um, yeah. And when yeah. Rudy was already playing in Quiet Ride at the Sunset Strip, he'd he'd always put me on the guest list because I didn't have any money, uh-huh. and I used to love to go see the band because I thought the band was great, and I thought Randy was phenomenal, and Kevin was very animated, you know, and he came from that from that. British singer kind mm-hmm. of school mentality, mm-hmm. so it was great. Um, and at one point, they were thinking of, of changing uh, changing drummers. And, and as much as I loved seeing the band, that's not the type of band I wanted to be in at the time because to me, they were a power pop band, and I wanted to be in Led Zeppelin. Yeah. <laughs> um, so so it, it never really happened, although Randy recommended me to... to um, to Kevin as Rudy had recommended me to Kevin um, and Randy had also recommended me to to Ozzy and we actually did uh, some rehearsals together really yeah because when Randy got together with Ozzy, he kind of brought you along, right, Rudy? Well, later on. Later on, yeah. First. Originally, what happened was that, that Sharon gave uh, Ozzy the option to only take one guy from L.A. Why is Back that? to England. Uh, budgetary. Gotcha. Yeah. And so he, he, he picked Randy, you know. And uh, for the longest time, they didn't have a drummer. You know, they had like a like a guy who was just sitting in, like a local pub guy and stuff <laughs> like that. And again, it was a matter of budget, you know. Um, so eventually, they got Lee, you know, to be in the band. Uh, it, it, again, going back to Quiet Riot, to me, I, I because I, I again, Frankie mentioned it was more of a power pop band, and then later on became 
and I got to give Frankie a lot of credit for this, it became more of a powerhouse type band, more Led Zeppelin meets ACDC type of Mm -hmm. sound because of its playing, you know, Frankie's playing. Sure. So it was a whole different direction in the band, you know. But it also worked because Rudy and I were such a strong rhythm section unto ourselves, you know, just organically. Um, I know that when I play something, he he knows what it's going to be even before I play it, and the same thing. So what happens in a situation like that is it's very comfortable. We don't have to overthink it. We don't have to worry about it. You know, we're very professional about what we do, but it's a very comfortable thing. And, And so that created the foundation of what became the Quiet Riot sound. I, I always give credit, you know, when people ask me about, you know, my my upbringing as, as a musician. You know, Frankie was the first drummer that I actually played with who had a concept of a rhythm section. The guys before him, you know, we were just playing parts. He played his parts, I played my part, and maybe sometimes we would lock in. And playing with Frankie, he showed me the the significance of the bass and drums locking in, and that's something that I've carried with me through uh, for the, since '1972. <laughs> like you said, the classic rhythm section. Yeah, yeah, but it happened. Yeah. But it happened also because Rudy was listening to all the right, all the right players. You know, I mean, you know, you, oh, that's you because, are the because Frankie had the biggest record <laughs> collection no, but, I've ever but, seen in my life. But you know, every musician is the sum of, of of those influences, and and Rudy and I had a lot of the same influences, and they were they were not. Like like just just some static influence you know i mean we we loved r&b but we also loved the progressive bands and we loved you know free and led zeppelin and all that so it wasn't just some static thing and it's and it's very difficult to find somebody else that's on the same wavelength sure. as you are and if it happens to be a bass player and you happen to be a drummer that's a gift that you you don't overlook those things frankie used to work at a record store because you know to to create a massive collection of records and you know this is not today you can go on youtube and listen to anybody you want back then you have to like be able to buy it you have to find it you have to find it and buy it frankie used to work at a record store i think you worked there so you could have access (laughs) to all those records i got all the problems well my my record collection started when i was a kid because the first two records that my father gave me was a miles davis record and a max roach record followed by a Buddy Rich record. So my collection started, you know, way, way back. back but working at the record store, sure, because that's when you used to get promos from, from record labels, um, and, and I would get the promos. And then I had a subscription to Melody Maker, uh, the U.K. newspaper, so I could find out who the new bands were coming <laughs> yeah, out yeah. over in the U.K. So then I would order those through the record store, and it, and it just went that way. So, you know, Rudy and I had access to, you know, if we wanted to go in a certain direction, you know, we just... Rudy mentioned your uh, Zeppelin influence and the Bonham influences, that classic feel at the beginning of Metal Health. Do, 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 mm-hmm. do, do, do. And I, I did a thing with, uh, I'm sure you guys have done it before, Sin City Sinners in mm-hmm. Vegas, the cover yes. band. And for whatever reason, me and Vinnie Paul were there. I was like, let's go do uh, Metal Health. And Vinnie's like, okay, how does that feel go? <laughs> and he had to think about it for a second. Once he got that feel down, he didn't have to do anything else. He just, I got the feel, I got it, let's do it. And it, was, it was great. <laughs> yeah. But just that, do, 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 ba, 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 you know? Yeah, it's, it's, very, it's very simple. It's a, it's a wake up call. It says, you know, you listen to this because something is about to happen. Yeah. yeah. That's all it was, just a wake up. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand.
Cool. Let's talk about the dynamic uh, frontman qualities and sing qualities of Kevin Dubrow. You know, and that's kind of the crux of the movie of, of, of Now You're Here, There's No Way Back. And it was kind of the it what made Quiet Riot special. And I want to ask you later in a couple of minutes if it was one of the reasons why Quiet Riot kind of had its fall. So let's talk about Kevin first. Uh, how was he as a singer, as a frontman? Well, you know, Kevin was always bigger than life, not just on stage. Just, you know, he'd walk into, he'd walk into a room and, and he would literally suck the oxygen out of the room because he was so dynamic. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, uh, Kevin wanted everything out of life and, and he, he got it, you know, both, both good and bad. Um, he was the complete package. Um, you know, he, he was animated. If you're a singer, you have to have uh, a certain amount of ego because you have to go out there, you know, essentially bare naked, no guitar, no drums, nothing, and sell it. Um, and he had an incredible amount of self-confidence. I always tell people about Kevin because there's, with everything, there's the duality of it. And I always tell people that Kevin was my biggest asset and my biggest liability mm-hmm. uh, because with everything that he did over the top, it was both over the top good and over the top bad, um, but I think once you see the movie, you will understand not only the personality uh, and the individual that Kevin um, was, and how dynamic, but also how troubled he was. But you'll also see how difficult it is for those shoes to be filled, um, sure. because he he was the complete package. I, I've told people so many times that Kevin. Had only two bad shows in his entire career. You know, people have great shows and and good shows, but bad ones. He only had two in his entire career. One because he had an incredibly bad cold, and the other one because he had been partying for two days solid. Mm -hmm. But beyond that, and when he got up on stage, that was his happy place. Mm -hmm. That was that was where he loved to be most. Um, But because he loved it so much, when when the curtain came down, he couldn't turn it off. Right, he became that character. Yeah, and that's when that's when those problems would surface. And with success um, came a situation where where Kevin just basically did whatever he wanted to do, and nobody could call him on it because as long as the band was successful, they didn't want to rock Kevin's boat. Mm-hmm. Um, and that just escalated and escalated and escalated until finally, you know, we had no choice but in 1987, um, the label, management. The American agent, the European agent, uh, everybody across the board wanted Kevin out hmm. because he had become that liability. Yeah. Rudy, you've played with some amazing uh, frontman and vocalists mm-hmm. from Ozzy to David Coverdale mm-hmm. to Jeff Tate. To, where does Kevin fit in? You know, what's, what's really interesting about Kevin is that I, I got to play with him in three bands. <laughs> I got to play with him in the Choir Riot, uh, Randy Rose Choir Riot. I got to play with him in Dubrow. Mm-hmm. And I got to play with him in the Mental Health version of Choir Riot. And as I recall, you know, Kevin's mission with the Randy Rose version of Choir Riot was to showcase Randy. Hmm. Very, he was always putting the spotlight on Randy. And uh, it was about their their relationship, you know. For like, for example, he wrote Kevin wrote one of my favorite songs, "Slick Black, Slick Black Cadillac," as a challenge from Randy. Like, yeah, no yeah, to challenge him to write a really good song. Oh. <laughs> so he came back and wrote the song, and I'm going like, oh my god, this one, you know. I mean, it was written before I joined the band, right? But once he told me the story, I said, hmm, okay, if this guy's put on, you know, back against the wall, he's gonna come up, you know, yeah, 
with with the goods. Then the Dubrow version, after Randy went over to uh, to join Ozzy, that's when I think Kevin started going on the path of finding who we know as Kevin today from the Metal Health version of Quiet Right, because it was really a departure mm-hmm. from the pop rock that, I mean, when... Towards the end, we were really pop rock. You know, I mean, you know, there was certain songs that were like, you know, it could have been the Archies or, you know, the Partridge <laughs> Family, you know, that melodic, poppy stuff, you know. Not even not even as hard edge as Sugar Sugar. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And, I mean, we only had a disco song, you know, one in a million, come on, you know. So, I mean, it, it was pretty desperate. But, you know, once you put Dubrow, I think he felt that the pressure was off and he was kind of like more getting deeper into what he wanted to be as a singer, mm-hmm. you know. And then when he got together with Frankie, Frankie brought in, you know, for the Metal Health version of the of Quiet Ride, he brought in that more of that, you know, heaviness that the band really didn't have mm-hmm. back then, you know. A lot of it had to do with, with a sign of the times, and I don't mean to mm-hmm. use that as a, you yeah, know. Yeah. It was, you know, we were in, it was a 70s version of the band. Things were getting a little bit harder. Uh, new Wave... And, and and punk were making the transition. There was a new wave of metal coming in from England, bands like Motorhead or even Ozzy, and, you know, I mean, and all yeah. that. Yeah, so it was there is the right time to start getting a little bit heavier, kind of like, you know, Led Zeppelin meets ACDC. Right. You know, and that's when... Kevin finally made the transition to what he's known as today. You know? Yeah, and, and, and Rudy Rudy is really, really spot on. If you look at if you look at the, the Choir Riot movie, um, you can actually everything Rudy just said, you can actually see happen because it'll show it'll there's there's material in there and footage in there of, of the Randy era. Uh, choir ride with with um, Rudy and the band and Kevin, and you can clearly see that that the emphasis was on Randy, and that was that was truly intentional. Um, and I agree with him about Slick Black Cadillac so much so that Kevin didn't want to record that again, and and I essentially forced him to mm-hmm. do it um, on the Metal Health record because I thought it was such a great song. But if you see in the documentary, you'll see the transition from from the Randy era Choir Riot to the Dubrow area uh, era choir ride when I first met Kevin. Um, and, and there's documentation of that in the movie. And then the natural transition uh, when Rudy rejoins the band again and we do the mental health record and then, you know, it's all there for the history book. So it is all documented in, in the film, which is one of the things I really enjoy. That's a part of the film I really enjoy watching because I see things that had nothing to do with me, but how that evolved to when I became part of the picture. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, it's, and it's great. You know, um, Randy's brother and sister uh, um, are in the film, and uh, they're interviewing the film. So they bring that perspective as right. well. And it's all in the movie. It's great. It's great history behind that. And also, too, talking about Randy, what uh, – and I know he didn't want to be or wasn't involved with the, with the film Carlos Cavazzo, but to replace Randy Rhodes, I think people forget. That's that, like – he must have like he is a hell of a player, but to get that gig where you're replacing Randy Rhodes in, in Quiet Riot mm-hmm. must have been a lot of pressure on him. Well, you know, the thing is you you don't replace you don't replace somebody like like Randy Rhodes. Right. Um that's number one. But number two, there was a there was a, a period of time where Randy had already become established with Ozzy before the Dubrow band, which then okay. became Quiet Riot, so there was a gap in there. It was a transition. Yeah, and and I remember I remember that um, when 
we were doing some gigs as Dubro, and we had a variety of guitar players. And and the last person was involved, I, I you know, was a really really good player, but he had never played with other musicians. Uh, and and there were some time issues, and that just drives me crazy. <laughs> um, and I said to Kevin, you know, if if this guy's playing the, the next show, he, he better bring a drummer with him because I'm not doing it. <laughs> and he goes, fine, you find a guitar player. And uh, and I had seen Carlos play in this other band, Snow. Um, and I told Kevin about him, you know, and said, hey, you know, guy looks great. He has long blonde hair, plays a, plays a uh, um, Gibson Destroyer, you know. Because <laughs> that matters at the time. Right? Yeah, it kinda, mattered kinda at the guitars, time. Yeah. yeah. Didn't wear a shirt, you know, and, and I'm saying, you know, we should get this guy because I, I spoke with his manager and, and the band broke up. And so I give Kevin the information. Kevin calls him. Carlos shows up. Um, he had cut his hair completely short, about as short as yours. It was no longer blonde. It was a natural color, brown. And he had gotten rid of the destroyer. Oh, and was wearing a shirt. <laughs> yeah. For the extra stick. Yeah. It came as a huge surprise. Showed up at Kevin's apartment, which, which Rudy also shared, um, with a cardboard box and all his belongings. Yeah. Yes, and so it began. There it was. (laughs) Let's talk about when when Metal Health was number one, and you guys are pretty much one of the biggest rock and roll bands in America. Uh, Tell us about some of the tours that you had. Good times. You guys were on top. Yeah, you know, it's it's, and and Rudy will attest to this. When we first went out, we went out in, in in a couple of station wagons, and then we graduated to to a Winnebago. Um, and we used to park the Winnebago in between the other band's tour buses because it was embarrassing. So when we got out of the Winnebago, it actually looked like we got out of a t- somebody's, you know, really nice tour bus. Um, it was, it was, it was, a, it was, a, it was a struggle. You know, we were playing a lot of the a lot of the bands that we were opening up for. The major acts would only work X amount of days a week, uh, oh. and, and we weren't getting that much money. So we would have to take club dates in between just to be able to to pay the expenses. The road, yeah, yeah. Um, but but it was it was it was phenomenal. It was wonderful because it really served. All the bands we worked with, and it's, it served Quiet Riot because what happened is with when we opened up for Scorpions, they had a predominantly male cr- uh, crowd, but Quiet Riot had a predominantly female crowd. So what it did is it exposed Scorpions sure. to, to the female crowd, and it exposed Quiet Riot to the male crowd. Uh, and the same thing happened with Black Sabbath, and the same happened with ZZ Top and Iron Maiden. We were we were blessed to be in the position to have a record that was doing so well yet we were still an opening act uh it was beneficial for everyone no regrets but then you but then you did your own headline i saw you guys play in winnipeg with kick axe white snake and quiet riot on top oh, yeah. yeah 1984 yeah. <laughs> that's right yeah. yeah yeah when uh when you guys were at your peak though i remember because being a fan at that time i think maybe it was 12 or 13 sometimes kevin would say crazy things in like circus magazine or something i remember he had a, was it larry the cat i could put my yeah, yeah, larry, larry the cat on a keyboard and he would make better sounds <laughs> than some of these bands well you know larry larry was incredibly talented so <laughs> more talented than tori rudy's dog <laughs> no of course no, not no uh, no well the difference is tori has a business mind whereas you know whereas larry was all was all about the chicks it's all about the hookers and blow <laughs> what would what would happen when you would see these things in the press would you would you read this stuff and go oh, or would you just not care or how'd you how'd you feel about that when you saw kevin's we comments? were powerless to stop it mm-hmm. you have to understand that during that period of time when the band became big the focus is almost always first and foremost on the singer mm-hmm. and secondly on the guitar player and everybody else is secondary so what would happen is you know kevin would get all the a interviews 
uh, and sometimes he and Carlos would do some of those interviews, and Rudy and I would get more, you know, the, the, the B and C interviews. Um, so what happened is Kevin was speaking to a much greater Large forum. Uh, and, and completely and totally out of control. Uh, a lot of it was his angst because it took him, in his mind, so long to make it. Um, but there was no filter with Kevin. You know, I, I always say that, that Kevin was the most honest person I've ever known about his feelings. Uh, that's not necessarily a good thing uh, in the public eye. Mm-hmm. And he didn't know when, when to, you know, there's a difference between speaking with friends and speaking to the world. Right. And he was speaking to the world, and they took notice. And but we were powerless to stop it. We we it's like a runaway train. You just sat there and hope that that the train doesn't crash. But if it does, that you don't get hurt too badly. How long were you guys headlining for? We were headlining for um, eighty four and into eighty five. Um, but either the problem was twofold. By then, um, the damage was already done. The damage to the band was already done by the time we started headlining. Because of what Kevin was saying? Correct. Yeah. Uh, and, and we were also getting a fair amount of criticism for doing another Slate song, Mama, We're All Crazy Now, on the second record. <clears throat> so that played into it. Um, and we were also advised that if we're going to go out and headline, you know, we, we, we have to compete with the big boys. We have to compete with the Van Halens and all of that. And so a, a touring set and staging and lighting was created that it was almost impossible to support. Uh, and that with, with, you know, sales not as strong. And when I say sales not as strong, you know, people look back and they say, well, the condition critical record was, was an absolute failure because it only sold 2 million plus <laughs> yeah. units. So, you know. Wish for one of those failures yeah. nowadays. Yeah. Right? So anybody out there that can have one of those failures, I am so incredibly proud of you. Um, but, you know, all of those things were, 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 were had a hand uh, against the band. By that point, Kevin's, Kevin's, uh, Kevin's um, situation was really out of control. Did you see that, Rudy, on the road? See kind of Kevin breaking down and. Uh, well, by then I was I, I was married. I, I stopped drinking for that whole tour. You know, because you know sometimes when, when you're on the road and, you know, you have to be disciplined. Mm-hmm. You know, to deliver the same thing every single night. So my way of doing being disciplined is to really be disciplined. You know, watch what I eat, exercise, no no alcohol. You know, and stuff like that. So I had a whole different lifestyle than because I was the only married guy in the band. Gotcha. You know, so you know, and sometimes when you have that in the bus, you know, it doesn't. It's not the best. You know, recipe environment to be yeah. in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All the dynamics. Yeah, exactly. Uh, especially then, I think thirty years later, we can look at it and respect each other's different lifestyles, whatever those may be, and um, and just take everybody for who they are and what mm-hmm. they do. You know, but back then, you know, we weren't as mature as we are today. It took us, you know, thirty years. <laughs> it's still a work in progress. <laughs> I, I mentioned this to you before. Um, it, there's a lot of similarities between. Quiet Riot being the West Coast and East, uh, Twisted Sister being the East Coast yeah. of almost the same thing happening at the same mm-hmm. time. Years and years and years of cutting your teeth and, and, and becoming really big in, in your area and then getting huge nationally mm-hmm. and then going away very quickly. Mm-hmm. You know, um, you can yeah. see those parallels. Yeah. yeah, you know, it was great to um, to have the Snyder from Twisted Sister film, right? in the film because he, he will give um, people who are watching the movie he will give them um, an insight uh, to to that 
you know, his whole situation with Twist's sister, the comparisons uh, with Quiet Riot, and uh, and he brought he brought a lot to the table. I think when people when people watch the movie and see you know, his participation in it, um, it, it reveals a lot of things that a lot of people didn't know. Mm-hmm. And it gives a different perspective, you know, not just the quiet ride perspective, but the perspective of the time yeah, uh, of the music and, and, you know, the differences and the similarities between the two bands. Yeah, how you can get so big and then have it kind of go away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was great. He was great to yeah, have in the really film. really good yeah. in the movie. Something else is kind of alluded to in the movie, too, and it's the classic story of, of the young rock guys uh, kind of s- signing a bad contract. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that with all the records you sold with uh, Metal Health that you really didn't come away with too much of it financially. Yeah, you know, I... How I look at the situation is, you know, we, um, it, it was the deal that was presented. And, uh, and. You don't know any better, of course. Well, yeah, and, and, and you accept it and, and you hope for the best. Was the deal all the publishing to, to the producers or? Watch the movie. <laughs> yeah, well, but you never really say in there. It just kind of says you ended up with. Watch the movie. All right. <laughs> Watch the movie. Yeah, we've. Another really poignant scene. Um, uh, is when you talk about Rudy had gone at this point in time when you had to get rid of Kevin in 87. How hard was that to have to get a new singer into the Quiet Riot when basically Quiet Riot was based around uh, Kevin DeBro in so many ways? It was more difficult. Believe me, it's it's been really difficult, but it was more difficult for me emotionally um, because even though the decision to to fire Kevin in 87 was was not a decision that was made by one singular pe- person <clears throat> it was made by everyone um Kevin always held me responsible for it mm. um so it was it was that was an emotional aspect of it um the idea of of getting somebody other than Kevin in the band was unthinkable to me um it was it was 3 years before before I even considered it, three years, mm-hmm. uh, and and uh, it was it was not a it was not an easy it's not an easy decision, um, and when you watch the film, you could you could see how difficult it was for you to do that, and how difficult it was to continue, mm-hmm. uh, and with all the different uh, the different dynamics and everything that has happened. What was the reason for your exit after the condition critical record? Oh, conflict, personality conflicts. I mean, you know. Like, again, like I just mentioned about, you know, maturity 30 years later. And, you know, I mean, I, I've, I've learned how to deal with certain situations that I didn't have the right tools, how to deal with them back then. And uh, I, I'm through life, I've learned a lot, a lot, uh, about a lot of things, you know, how mm-hmm. to deal with them. Back then, you know, it was a way, uh, the way that the industry was shaped Back in the 80s, up, actually up until the whole industry started shrinking and now everything is in the hands of the artists, you know, management was not your best counselor, hmm. you know, um, not only to myself, but to the whole group, you know, uh, record companies were not. I mean, actually, they're not really there to babysit a band anyways, you know. But neither is management, but it's in the best interest of management to keep the group together and to keep them going in the right direction, you know, and to put out all the fires. And, you know, we had we had decent, good to decent management, but when it came to getting everybody in a room and saying, listen, we have a situation, what can we do to fix it? I was never, in, I was never approached with that, mm-hmm. you know. So, um, but right now I'm in a 
in a spot that I, I actually don't really need that. Because if I need to be in a situation that I need to fix something, now I have the tools to fix it mm-hmm. with, that I didn't have back at then. the time. Yeah. Did you leave Ozzy's band to join Quiet Riot? Yes, I did. Okay. Yes, I did. I went from one of the biggest bands in the world to the biggest question mark <laughs> ever <laughs> in the music history. Was that because of Randy's passing? Uh, it was It was definitely, I wouldn't say a byproduct, but what happened was in order for me personally to survive uh, what, it, what it was like to get up on stage within 10 days after Randy's death and continue the tour, I, I was not aware of this, but I, I would shut down emotionally and disconnect myself from everything that was going on in that little square that I was standing in. <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't look at the audience. I wouldn't even look at the guys in the band. All, all I knew was that this is the set list. One, two, three, four, play the songs. I was just playing notes. Mm. I wasn't playing music anymore. And, and what happened was we, we did a video called Speak of the Devil, which is the you know with Brad Gillis yeah, the performing Sabbath. No, actually, it, there's two Speak of the Devils. There's the video that went on MTV on gotcha, Halloween okay. 1983, which is out. Of the Diary of a Madman Tour. Of a Diary of a Madman Tour. And I watched the, myself playing, and I'm going, oh, my God. I'm completely disconnected. Mm. This is not the reason why I started playing music. I needed to bring the joy of playing music again into my life. So I get, a, I get while, while this is going on, I get a phone call from Kevin and say, hey, we're, we're, we're recording Thunderbird, which is a song that he wrote for Randy when oh. he left Quiet Riot. And I used to play that song with him in Dubrow. So he invited me to come down to do, that, to do it as a tribute to Randy. And, of course, you know, Frankie was in the band. I have been playing with him since 1972. So it's like family. You know, like, yeah. He doesn't get any more comfortable with that. And then this guy, Carlos Cavazzo on guitar, we just met, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I'm going, Wow. This feels good again. Mm-hmm. So I, 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 I waited. You know, my my option is I'm going in. I can, I can continue doing this and be completely, you know, in, in one of the biggest bands in the world, but really incredibly, you know, unhappy with what I'm doing because you know every time you step on stage, you know, there every you know the first thing you heard when you during a diary of a madman tour was randy actually playing diary of the madman you know the uh they would intro with the, the intro with that and then you know it's the same castle the same dwarf running oh, around you know yeah. throwing meat at the audience and <laughs> and and wearing the same clothes and everything it was like oh my god you know so this gave me an opportunity to start again and really do what you the what i originally intended to be as a musician mm-hmm. find the joy in playing again now, yeah. kind of as a as a parallel thing, you know, you mentioned or we mentioned earlier about how you went to Kevin's mom to get permission to continue Quiet Riot after Kevin passed away. Did you feel the same way that that Rudy just described when when you heard that Kevin passed away? Well, the situation is different, and, and it's really interesting because I was so grateful that Rudy made the decision to leave Ozzy and come back to Quiet Riot. But at the same time, as grateful as I was, I couldn't understand, you know, I mean, Rudy and I had been through the through the bar circuit back east and, and, and all of that and struggling in L.A. And all of a sudden, you know, he was in, in one of the biggest bands of all time and he leaves it to come back to Quiet Riot. The question mark. So I was ridiculously grateful. I mean, thrilled thrilled but i didn't understand it well i I just didn't (laughs) understand it Mm -hmm. you know but i wasn't going to question it because i mean it was a gift yeah it took me 30 years to understand where he came from because 
Randy died, and as Rudy said, 10 days later, he's up on that stage playing those. Everything is the same except for this wonderful component, Randy, who's not there. I had three years where I didn't pick up drumsticks, I didn't play, I didn't do anything. You know, I was in mourning for three years. I had that, for lack of a better term, advantage that Rudy didn't. Mm -hmm. He was thrown right back into the same thing, except it wasn't the same thing. Um, as far as the situation with, with, uh, with Kevin's mother, I will accept any criticism. Bring it on as much as you want to criticize me. The world can criticize me if they want for doing Quiet Ride without Kevin, as long as one of those critics is not Kevin's mother. That is at the heart of it. If she if she had a problem with it, then I wouldn't have moved forward. Really? Yeah. That's the only person that I didn't want to insult or hurt or or in any stretch of the imagination um, being considerate of. Everybody else can say what they want. Makes no difference to me. Makes no difference to me. I want their support, but if they if they don't offer it, then that's their business. You know, life mm -hmm. goes on. What was your uh, mindset after three years to finally get back on the horse? Because when, when Kevin died, I mean, you, you mentioned this a little bit. With Randy, obviously no fault of his own. Horrible accident. With, with, with Kevin, you know, also an accident, but kind of a self-imposed self one with an OD mm -hmm. or whatever it was. Was there a lot of anger there towards Kevin? Because not only did you lose your best friend, but you lose your business partner and you lose your job. You know, the, the dynamics of it are, are so intricate. Um, it wasn't until it wasn't until um, Regina wanted to make the film that I that I seriously you know because I mean it was the back of my mind to maybe try it again um, because I'm one of those people that Rudy will tell you I will always try the most impossible thing I will always try you well, know that's how you make it to see if I can overcome yeah. it right. and if I don't you don't uh, but it wasn't until you know I was really forced to look at uh, at all this footage that I had. And all the pictures and all the magazines. Because remember, it's not just live performances, home movies, you know, um, pictures of us backstage, stuff that nobody nobody saw but the people that were, you know, in, in our little in our like little that. party. Um, that I came to realize that that you know I miss Kevin, but but I miss being quite right because I've invested my in almost my entire adult career. Yeah. In, in this band, sure. Um, and I felt it was I felt it was unfair. Um, for me not to be able to continue, you know, mm -hmm. uh, even though a, a, a critical component uh, was now, you know, not part of the picture. And how hard was it to to play that first gig? You, know, you show you show the uh, how you found Mark Huff, who's not no longer in the band. But how hard was it to play that first gig without Kevin Dubrow as the front man? The easiest way to explain that is that. I was always comfortable sitting sitting back there on the drums and 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 watching Kevin go crazy on stage mm -hmm. for all those years, mm -hmm. and and that was gone. That was gone. Yeah. Quick question. I was going to bring this up earlier. Do you think speaking about the '80s and it was so much about look, you know, hair and all that stuff, and then Kevin on Quiet Ride Three has like this. I guess you'd say a wig, right? Mm -hmm. Put on the wig. Extensions. Extensions. Yes. Okay. Extensions. It looked, so it wasn't even, it was just like, he has his hair. And then it's not like now where you could just shave it. Right. Really, you had to have 
long hair. Louis the Fourteenth. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Was that his decision? Like, was he really like, I gotta have long hair? Was it something he just wanted to try? Because he had it for the rest of his career. He had blonde extensions. He had yeah. black curly extensions. Everything like that. He was he was very image motivated. Mm. Um, he also got bored with things, you know, very quickly because his mind was always racing. Um, so when you see all the different, you know, um, changes over time with Kevin, uh, a lot of it had to do with, yeah, he was image conscious, uh, but he also got bored very easily. And, uh, and you know, a lot of the stuff was tributes to, to some of his heroes. You know, I mean, the, the last look that Kevin had, both, you know, both the hair and the clothes, were, were classic 1972 Rod Stewart in the face. I was going to say, yeah, it was like a blonde straight. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And, and he made no apologies for it. He didn't care whether, whether people knew it or didn't know it. He didn't care. You know, he, he only cared about what he cared about. Yeah. <laughs> he was lucky in that regard, you know. Um, it, it, it does... It does Cause a lot of problems. It leaves a lot of I'm wreckage. Sure it caused a lot of problems back in those days too, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. absolutely. Uh, Rudy, uh, just as we wind down here, which one of your favorite memories about about Quiet Riot? Is there one that stands out there's, in your mind? Yeah, there's really so many. Uh, 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 oh my God! Uh, well, us festival, really. I mean, because it's it's not just what happened on stage; it's what happened before and after. Mostly before. <laughs> what led to us playing, you know, at the Ausfest. What yeah. happened during, you know, like, like uh, uh, for example, we, uh, like Leman, uh, Frankie mentioned before, we, we already had gigs like that when we were offered that show within a couple of days before the actual mm-hmm. Oz Festival, right? So we had to, like, make some arrangements and send our own road crew ahead. Mm. They didn't come to the Oz Festival. Oh. Who came to our festival? Oz Festival was actually our manager and our tour manager. Yeah, and we took, and we took, uh, and we took one, one, um, one of our crew, um, 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 Carlos's guitar tech. Yes, yes. So, but the guy that was taking care of my stuff, was our tour manager who never even had his hand on a on a guitar tuner and back in the you know we had this weird guitar tuner that you could dial in whatever sounded you know the, the pitch mm-hmm. it wasn't like calibrated you know like we have nowadays so I I, I, I calibrated and I gave it to the guy and I said okay just put this on stage and I'll tune my guitar during the guitar solo so he goes okay no problem and it was one of those things that we were in the trailer and every time somebody came back from the stage they would be petrified it would be like oh my god there's so many people out there he said oh my god I'm so scared I'm, I'm really, you're scared you're gonna be behind the yeah. nobody's gonna see you I don't wanna know how scared you are because you know I have to deal with this right yeah. so I, I, we get up on stage and we do our set and it was like you know it was hot or you know everything was going out of tune soon, yeah. yeah so here comes Carlos's gu- uh, guitar solo and I go behind the stack that actually I rented some gear that didn't work at all my back line was not working that big thing you see behind me was just for show yeah, it, was, yeah. It, it was called it was called diamond yeah. sound diamond. but it was really actually cubic zirconia <laughs> yeah. sound okay yeah it was it was supposed to work but it didn't yeah. right so actually thank god that the uh, the uh, the company that was running the monitors was Tasco who were all the company that did the Aussie tour and I knew all the guys so they actually ran me through the the, the monitor system wow. all the uh, we had like huge mm-hmm. you know side PA everywhere, you know, PA side ev- everywhere. Yeah. so that's how that's how I played so here comes the guitar solo. I go back there to tune my guitar, and my my tuner was off calibration completely. 
And I'm going, what am I going to do now? I say, well, okay, well, I think it was around here. You know, I take the dial, kind of like eye it in. It's around here. So I'm tuned, right? So I go, okay, I'm tuned. So we go back for the next two songs, you know, Metal Health and uh, Come Feel the Noise. And you'll hear it in the video. I'm completely out of tune. Yeah, that's not feedback you hear. That's dogs howling. <laughs> because I'm in tune to myself, but not to Carlos. <laughs> not, to, yeah, yeah. not to the band. So that's my memory of the Now, now, now let me... Let me add to that. Um, I, you know, I needed to have a drum tech because our drum tech wasn't going to be there. So I had our tour manager get in touch with a drum tech that I had before that we had fired mm -hmm. and hired him so I'd have somebody there. So here we are. It's about 40 minutes before we were supposed to go on. And I'm standing backstage. And my drum kit is not quite completely set up yet. And, and you know, it was getting down to the wire. So I go out there and my tech is, is like on one knee clutching, clutching his heart. And he says, I, th I, th I think I'm having a heart attack, you know, a drug-induced heart attack, no less, right? I think I'm having a heart attack. Now, I think he's messing with me, right? So he's now down laying, laying on, the, on, on the stage, and I start to kick him, right? And as I'm kicking, the paramedics come around the corner with a... And they take him away. <laughs> so now he's gone. My drum set's not set up, right? So I go backstage. I tie my hair back up in a ponytail. I take, I take, put a T-shirt on, you know, some roadie sweaty T-shirt on, and put a baseball cap on and sunglasses. I'm up setting up my drums, pretending I'm not me. Right. Okay. Okay. I still have the the the, the tights, the black and red tights, but I'm pretending I'm not me. That that was the US Festival. That was the real US Festival. That's the true story of rock and roll. <laughs> the biggest gig of your career. And you got to set up your yeah, own no. stuff. And I'm kicking this poor guy because I think he's I think he's messing with, with you, me, right? What, what was it, what was it like backstage? Did you guys stick around after the show, or did no. you have to go no, right no, away? No. You had to leave right away. We had to leave right away. Yeah, yeah. down to the next gig. Yeah, yeah. So people always think you guys are hanging around after yeah. you see any of the bands. Yeah. Like, no, we we yeah. have got a job to do. Oh One yeah, thing. yeah, yeah. Champagne, no. Yeah. Caviar, no. Limo, no. no. One thing that I recall as we were getting in the van, we were one of the everybody else was going by helicopter. We had a van that had to go through through traffic, you know, to get to the gig. Right, Van Halen was arriving from the night before from partying, so it was like what 11 or 10 30, 11 yeah, o'clock, 10 30 in the yeah. morning. Yeah. yeah, they were arriving oh, back to the hotel, back. so we're getting back. Yeah. And, and, and let me tell you to give you to give me an idea how much discipline I had, even at my most undisciplined, is when we checked into the hotel the night before for um to play the US Festival. I'm walking down the hallway and I run into Alex Van Halen and uh, Greg's drum tech, mm -hmm. who insisted that I go drinking with them. Mm -hmm. And of course, I, you know, hey, you throw the gauntlet down, I'm going to go. But, but at some point, I knew that I had to stop this, and they did not want to let me go. Mm. So, so I pulled the old, I got to go to the bathroom, and then I went over to the bathroom. There was no one in the bathroom, right? And I said, oh, somebody's in the bathroom, so I'm going to go to my room, go to the bathroom. And that was it. Yeah. I skipped. I skipped. <laughs> you split. They didn't. They continued. <laughs> well, that was kind of the 80s, wasn't it? <laughs> to some. <laughs> the excellent documentary is called Well, Now You're Here. There's no way back. It's on iTunes. It's on DVD. It's on Showtime still. You got to check it out. It's an amazing story. And the thing I love is two friends for almost 50 years, 40 oh years, yeah. over 40 years. Yeah. Yeah. My goodness, man, that, yeah. that's very, very cool. A quiet Riot still continuing yeah. on with Jizzy Pearl now, who I think is a great singer. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's worked for, out really well with uh, with Jizzy. With he's, Jizzy uh, yeah. A true got, pro too. Yeah, he's been around. He's been around a long time. He's done it. He gets it. Mm -hmm. He uh, he's not expecting to walk into mm -hmm. a situation and and all of a sudden, and especially with the with the economy and the industry the way it is, he gets it. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's mm -hmm. been uh, a breath of fresh air. And Rudy, you're still playing yeah. with every band ever. Yeah, well, you know what? As a matter of fact, 
Frankie, uh, this the Quiet Riot Bang Your Head tour. That's right. Uh, when when, uh, when it starts in June? They, yeah, they just sent out. They just sent out a blast. Um, oh, so it's actually you guys are putting on kind of like a touring. Yeah, we did it last. Thing. We did it last year. We did it last year. It was uh, the Bang Your Head tour 2014, <laughs> and that was uh, with Faster Pussycat, uh, Bullet Boys, and Gilby Gilby Clark, Gilby Clark. from, uh, from mm-hmm. Guns N' Roses. And uh, this year's edition is Quiet Riot, um, Jack Russell's Great White, uh, Tracy Guns, LA Guns, and Enough's Enough. And so they just started. Uh, they're just beginning to book that tour now. The blast went out this morning. Yeah. How does that fit in? And I'm going to be there. You're going to be there in a different band. <laughs> <laughs> you got to come on stage and jam, though, man. At some point. Well, it goes as an excuse to uh, go and get coffee. <laughs> oh, listen, I'm, I'm 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 ridiculously grateful for that because I'm going to be spending almost all my time with Rudy. Yeah. So so yeah, it's it's, it's that comfortable. Yeah, yeah, we always like saying. So when do you have time to go and get some coffee? And I go. So you know, this time is like okay, we we're, we're in the same city, same time. Yeah. yeah, there you go. Okay. Yeah, so we'll be back. You know, just yeah. really totally. Cold. Coffee buzzed out. <laughs> Guys, thank you so much for coming today. It's Thanks great. for having us. It's been great. Thanks, Chris. Thanks to Rudy Sarzo and Frankie Benali from Quiet Riot. The documentary, once again, it's called Well, Now You're Here. There's No Way Back. It's running on Showtime earlier this year, and now it's available on iTunes, Google Play, video on demand starting August 18th. And here's the best part. When it's released August 18th, there's going to be nearly an hour of extra bonus features and material. Quiet Riot movie. We'll have all the updates. Keep checking the site. You'll hear more information here, right here on this show. And remember, if you live in LA, you can see the documentary on the big screen playing at the Arena Theater in Hollywood starting May 22nd. That's next Friday, okay? May 22nd at the Arena Theater in Hollywood. Go check it out. If you need some transportation there, you might want to get a new car. You can do that through True Car app or you can visit TrueCar.com. It'll save you tons of time and tons of money. Listen, don't waste valuable weekend time going from dealership to dealership in search of the perfect car for you. Why waste hours searching? You can check out True Car and the True Car mobile app in mere minutes. You can build the car you actually want. You can find out what other people paid for it. It's so easy to fall in love with your new car. You can also lock in the guaranteed savings, usually over three grand off of MSRP. What a bargain for you. We got a lot of ways to spend the weekends. You want to spend that time with your loved ones, friends, families, doing fun activities. Don't give up that free time to hunt for the car. Let True Car and True Car Mobile App do all the hard work for you, okay? I know you need the car. I want to help you get it. Steal your weekends back and get the car you want without overpaying. Save time, save money, and never overpay, all right? Get the good, reliable transportation you need and get it quicker than ever. Download the True Car app today. All right. And speaking of that car, you might want to go to see Fozzie. We got a bunch of shows this summer, including the dates with Slash, the huge shows with Slash. Those start next week, May 18th, Chicago, 21st, Austin, 22nd at the Jefferson Theater in Beaumont, Texas. That's just Fozzie. 23rd, Houston, 24th, Dallas. So many cool shows. Uh, go to FozzyRock.com to hear about all of them. VIP information and information about the June 25th show in Des Moines, June 26th, Sioux City, July 24th in Kitchener, Ontario, August 9th, Heavy Montreal, Montreal, Kiss Cruise, October 30th, Paul and Gene and all my buddies in Kiss. That's uh, sold out, but I can still brag about it. So many cool things coming up. I want you to go to FozzyRock.com once again. Check all that stuff out. I got a huge summer, so many projects to talk about. 
ones that you know about, ones that you don't know about. Stick with me, man. You know I love you. I'm looking forward to seeing you. I'm looking forward to uh, having a lot more great shows here. And I thank you for, uh, for shopping online through my Amazon links. I, I, it's the easiest way to support the show so I can keep doing it for free for twice a week. Find those Amazon links at podcastone.com. Support our show's banner at the top of the page. Hey, then click on Talk is Jericho. You see all three of my Amazon links in the UK, the USA, the Canada. Hey, every time you do that, Amazon kicks back a little cash to this show so we can keep doing this for you for free for twice a week. No extra fees, no hidden challenges. You're just getting your shopping done. You're helping me out in the process. Uh, that's it. Another amazing show uh, with... Awesome, awesome, awesome Frankie Benali and Rudy Sarzo. Of course, Ash the Fish Expert. I love him so much. Uh, I will see you guys next week. I got a surprise for you. All right? I told you July 4th who my opponent was in Tokyo at the Sumo Arena. Well, he's also going to be my opponent this Wednesday on Talk is Jericho. That's right. I got NXT's Finn Balor on the show. That's going to be huge. The debut podcast of Finn Balor, at least since he's been in NXT, and he's here with me. You want to hear it? You know where to come. You you stay hard. You stay hungry. You stay cool. And we'll see you next Wednesday right here on PodcastOne.com on Talk is Jericho. A big thank you and a big Y-E-A-H-B-O-Y-E-E. Yeah! You can download new episodes of Talk is Jericho every Wednesday and Friday at PodcastOne.com. That's PodcastONE.com. 